2: you. Dr. Herb London is going to be our special guest today here on our big broadcast here on iHeartRadio. Tune in iTunes, Radio Loyalty, and of course, uh, 50 plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world. And uh, Dr. London, first of all, um, your books are absolutely amazing. You have been talking about Radical Islam for a heck of a long time. And our good buddy IQ Arrizoli has been talking with me and Dan and Don about this for for what seems like the last 10 years. It's like you guys are sharing notes. Tell us about your latest book, my friend, and then I'll let IQ jump in and ask you some questions, and then we'll let Dan and Don jump in here as well.
0: Well, thank you for the comment about the book, by the way. Very much appreciated. Yes. But let uh, let me talk about my latest book, which is called Leading from Behind. And it's, uh, it's a book that tries to point out what happened during the Obama years. Obama, by and large, withdrew from American foreign policy. If one were to describe it, you'd say it's neither foreign nor policy. He wanted to <laughs> make the point that the arc of history was moving in our direction. And it was not necessary for the United States to intervene anywhere. I, I mean, un- went unrecognized during the Obama years is that when you withdraw precipitously, as we did from Iraq and other locations, the United States created a vacuum. That vacuum in international affairs cannot exist very long, and it's filled generally by rather unpleasant actors, as we've seen with ISIS and we've seen with uh, the Iranians. So there's no question that the United States, to some degree, is responsible for the general disarray that exists in world affairs, in part because of the policies that were adopted by uh, by former President Obama. Now, one of the reasons why the book, takes on a certain kind of importance is because it does create a pathway to the future. I mean, if we're talking about Trump, what we are talking about is a president who's got to restore confidence in the allies that have lost confidence in the United States during the eight years that Obama was president of the United States. So this is his task. Do I, what can I do to sustain support among the Sunni nations? How do I create an env- environment in uh, Asia where the Japanese come to the conclusion that the United States stands with them? How do I offset the creation of the unilaterally created air perimeter zone that the Chinese created in the South China Sea? These are the kinds of questions that are now addressed by the Trump team.
2: Don, do you have any uh, any questions uh, for for the good doctor here as 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 we uh, get set here?
1: Oh, uh, many uh, his conclusions I couldn't agree with uh, most, but let me ask you. Having said that. Uh, what should be, uh, President Trump Trump's policy be in the South China Sea and in North Korea? We'll
0: start with South well, China Well, let's start with North Korea. I mean, obviously, the, the policies in North Korea are very limited, in part because we averted our gaze for so long. When Bill Clinton signed the agreement with North Korea, indicating that he would provide food to North Korea and in return, the North Koreans would not develop their nuclear weapons. Of course one part of that equation was was achieved we did provide the food but the north koreans of course continued to develop their nuclear weapons and so we've seen several administrations including the bush administration that averted their gaze and did not act on north korea now we find ourselves in a situation where after the last test we realized that the north koreans may have the capability of firing an icbm that can reach the west coast of the united states probably reach alaska and with submarine launch missiles, maybe reach Hawaii right now. And so this becomes a very alarming situation. When the president met with the Senate, he indicated to both Democrats and Republicans that the United States is now facing a threat, a very real threat, and a threat that has to be, in some sense, adjudicated. And so the president is moving ahead to do the following. One, he's putting as much pressure in China as possible, although I think a lot more pressure has to be introduced. But he has met with Z with and Mar-a-Lago, Zieg agreed to cooperate, but of course the Chinese very often agree to something that they disagree with very five minutes afterwards. And what you have is the Chinese have increased their trade with North Korea by 40 percent since the Mara lago meeting. In addition, the United States has got to make sure that there's some sort of sanctions regimen, where if in fact the nation is trading with North Korea, that nation will not have the opportunity to trade with the United States again. And so that has to be put in place. The president also realizes that we must have a robust anti-missile system that has to be introduced across the globe, as well as on the west coast of the United States, and the EGIS system has to be introduced as well. So we need a robust anti-defense missile system as soon as possible. And that requires a lot of money, and it requires the Congress to sit down and think seriously about the allocation of funds. And then the last, I think, the president has got to put pressure on Japan. The Japanese probably have more leverage in any nation in this equation. And the reason why I say that is because if the Japanese were to change Article 9 in the Constitution, introduce nuclear weapons into the country, I recognize the fact that it's a difficult thing to do, but if President Abe were to move in that direction or even think about it, there is no question that the Chinese would act very rapidly. The last thing in the world that the Chinese want to see is Japan armed with nuclear weapons changing the correlation of forces in the Pacific. So that becomes a very real leverage point for the United States. Keep in mind that if a missile were fired from Pyongyang to Fukuoka, it takes 11 minutes. The Japanese Constitution at the moment says you must have consultation before you engage in a counterattack. Well, what can you say in 11 minutes? The missiles are coming. The missiles are coming. That's about it. So there's no doubt that if the Japanese had a deterrent, things would be very different.
1: Well um uh, two things I, I, uh, what you're saying is music to my ears but uh, two <laughs> things I, um according to the south Koreans um uh and according to other sources uh the uh, so-called intercontinental missile um uh, isn't very effective once it re-enters the atmosphere that's always has been the uh, problem with, with ICBMs uh, that we ma- have managed to finish to, uh, uh, to overcome. Perhaps other nations haven't. But um, I guess my, my uh, other real question is, uh, do you continue to send destroyers and other um, warships uh, next to the islands in the South uh, China Sea and uh, uh, keep uh, um, uh, goading the, the Chinese uh, dragon?
0: Well, I think that what we've got to do is apply pressure. And, yes, goading the Chinese is correct. Keep in mind that they've created these artificial reefs that now can accommodate their fighter bombers so that it becomes very important for the United States to demonstrate that the Pacific is not the Chinese ocean. It's an ocean that will have to be shared between the Chinese and the United States. It's very clear that what the Chinese did in the South China Sea would interfere with trade very dramatically. Keep in mind that 40% of the world's commercial trade goes through the South China Sea into the Straits of Malacca. That becomes a very significant point if you do not have the ability to deal with freedom of the seas any longer, because the Chinese can control that part of the world. So the the United States has an obligation from an international standpoint to do everything in our power, to maintain the freedom of the seas and access to the regions in in that part of the world that the Chinese are calling their own, the part of this periphery.
1: Uh, Dan uh, Dan uh, Dan Perk called me. He's in the doctor's chair uh, and he can't join us for the rest of the program. Not not
2: a so, problem. Uh, not a problem. Oh, I Q okay, okay. can I Q Al Can you hear us, my friend?
3: Of course I can hear you, yes. uh,
2: Dr. Herb London uh, yeah. is, is absolutely amazing. He's our guest today. Listening to all this, do you have any questions for the good doctor?
3: No, I've got a comment. I agree with him 100% about uh, Japan going nuclear. Eight years ago, and since that time, on several radio t- stations in America, I said exactly the same thing. Japan should go nuclear. Because if they don't go nuclear, as the doctor said, all the others are going to literally dominate the, the, the Asian continent, will be China and North Korea. By the way, we're forgetting in the equation uh, Iran, because North Korea and Iran collude together both on ballistics and nuclear weapons. Agreed. But let me. I ask think that what? was stated very well, by the way. I mean, there has been
0: collaboration between Iran and North Korea, and almost all of the technology that has been developed in North Korea with Chinese assistance, I might add, has gone to Iran as well. They've been, the Iranian scientists have been at almost all the tests that the North Koreans have engaged in. And so it is true that Japan has tremendous leverage here, but the internal politics in Japan make it very complicated for Abe, because after all, there's still a generation that remembers Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which in part accounts for Article 9 in the first place. He has to demonstrate to a younger generation that this kind of deterrent is absolutely essential at this moment.
1: But, but let me jump in and let's ask you a question. Why not arm uh, uh, the uh, South Koreans with nuclear weapons?
0: Oh, I'm not opposed to that either. I'm all in favor of arming the South Koreans. Keep in mind that the new president is very much concerned about that, largely because he thinks it would be, uh, it would be provocative. But I think that it makes more sense to arm the South Koreans <laughs> also developed a fad in system in, in South Korea, which they've been very reluctant to introduce. The new president is very, very careful, very cautious, and very progressive. By and large, I think probably thinking that at some point the, uh, the two Koreas will be united, and she wants to make sure that the South Koreans are in the ascendancy. But, I mean, look, the threat is very real. And in addition, the president of the United States, while he should be thinking of the 20 million people who live in South Korea, also has to give some consideration to the 28,000 Americans who serve as a tripwire in that country. We've got a very significant force there and we put them in harm's way. We have an obligation to try and provide for as much protection for those Americans as possible. Doctor, you know, uh, the,
3: sorry. Well, no, you, you first, like you. Thank you very much. I suggested on several occasions, even on this radio talk show, next time the North Korean shooter missile, it should be shot literally out of the sky by an American anti aircraft, anti missile missile system. The minute it goes into international waters or international space, it is subject to be to be destroyed for the simple reason what the Koreans are doing is exactly the opposite of what the United Nations demanded them not to do. So shooting them down would be the best thing without going to war, by the way just to prove the point that every time they shoot a rocket, it will be destroyed. What do you think?
0: I think that you are a very, very intelligent man. I think I couldn't agree with you more. I would love to see that happen. By the way, taking that position, as you've indicated, is completely consistent with the UN protocols on this matter, where the exactly. UN has said time and again that North Korea cannot use international waters for the firing of missiles. And here I think what the United States is doing, we're not harming anyone, we're simply destroying their missile. So I, I, I think that makes an awful lot of sense.
1: Thank I've advocated you. We, uh, that,
0: by the way, for some time. The, uh,
1: the unfortunate part about all this is you only get one shot at it. And if you, you, you miss, uh, everybody will know about it. That's the, that's the thing. We managed all, to... I
0: mean, look, there are always some ponderables in this. So you're absolutely right. I mean, there are no guarantees that we're going to hit that, that missile... And, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a failure. All it means is that we failed once. We might improve our system and hit it a second time. The, just as w- the North Koreans may applaud the fact that the United States missed in this, in this particular occasion, they can't be entirely sure what would happen the next time. It's always the imponderables that account for so many of the bad judgments that are made on in international
3: affairs. Oh, oh, by the oh, way, not... with, all, with all your respect, sorry to interrupt you. Every single THAAG missile system has got eight missiles. You can shoot eight of them. One of them will hit. <laughs> you're, you're right.
1: But if you remember when we knocked out, the, we demonstrated with the Terrier missiles and, and the uh, the Aegis cruiser that, that we, were, we were able to do that. Uh, I'm told well, we've duplicated it twice again without a public announcement. But, but the, the kill rate is still um, not as good as we would like. Um, I think
0: that's true. I think that's accurate. But just as the North Koreans are moving ahead technologically, so are we. And we're doing everything in our power to try and bolster the Fad the and, uh, and the Aegis system. So I think they're a lot more sophisticated today than they were five years ago and will be even more sophisticated next year. So obviously you're going to accelerate production of new technologies in order to try and counteract what the North Koreans are doing. Now, again, they're active as well. There's no question about it. It's one of the reasons why the threat increases every day.
1: You know, music to my ears as far as I'm concerned. You're speaking. But can we go back to your book, which I think is fascinating, and ask you. Um, Why do you think, you know, everybody talks about what President Obama did, but but why do you think he did it?
0: I, I think that President Obama, by and large, had a kind of Marxist view of the world. And I'm not saying that's a pejorative. He, he believed that the dialectic is moving history in a certain direction. And as a consequence, it was not necessary for the United States to play any active role in world affairs. When he went through his apologia uh, after taking office in 2008, He made it clear to nations around the globe the United States is going to play a different kind of role. The reason why I entitled the book Leading from Behind is because that was the language that Obama used. We're going to lead from behind. Well, I don't know how you do that. That seems like an oxymoron to me. And so what (laughs) happened during this period is that by and large the president was really saying, we're opting out. You know, you may have counted on the United States before, but we're not going to play that role. The vacuum will be filled by others. And he even made the point based on this paper that was done by Brzezinski and Gates, that Iran would be a stabilizing influence in the Middle East. Iran. And so one of the reasons why there was a tilt to Iran with the nuclear deal was not only because of nuclear weapons, but because it was seen from a geopolitical standpoint that the Iranians would be able to offset the Sunni influence in that part of the world. It would be a balance of power. And so by and large what you've had is the United States who started to see the world very, very differently from the past. And the president, unquestionably, had a philosophical view that was based on this rather childish proposition, in my judgment, that history will simply move in a certain direction. We don't have to worry terribly much about the intervening years, but in time, we'll all be singing Kumbaya, and nations will work together.
1: (laughs) And and the lion shall lay down with the lamb. Um, Could I I go a step further? I heard an interesting... uh, comment last night, I was on another program, that uh, uh, the host thought that at some point in the next couple of years President Obama would admit that he is uh, uh, a Muslim. Do you think that's possible and do you think that had an influence on on how he thought?
0: Well, you know, it's very, very tricky because, you know, I, I, I don't really know what is in someone's heart, what he was really thinking. But I can tell you that when the president made the point, which was a really important point, that the most beautiful sound in the world was the call to prayer he heard when he was a youngster in Indonesia. That struck me as a clear statement about his devotion to Islam. Now, whether he is a Muslim and will admit that, I don't know. I mean, it's very difficult to say. But there is no question that there was great sympathy for the Muslim world. And you will remember the Cairo speech that was given in 2009. And that was a clear breakthrough, where not only was it a speech rather sympathetic to the Muslim world, but he also invited the Muslim Brotherhood to sit in the front of that uh, uh, stadium, where, in fact, the speech was delivered. And they were given the honored position, the Muslim Brotherhood. And the speech was given in Egypt. And, of course, in Egypt, they recognized the Muslim Brotherhood as a banned organization that now is seen as the enemy of President Sisi. So, I mean, it was rather interesting that, you know, history has kind of turned around. Here we have the Muslim Brotherhood, which in 1928 was responsible for the most extremist moves in the Islamic world, being honored by President Obama in 2009. Well, what does that suggest? <laughs>
1: uh, uh, Again, you're amongst the converted here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I realize that. And you know something? (laughs) This is a very unusual position for me. Usually, I'm with people who want to scream at me and insult me. So, this is a a very unusual moment.
2: We've got... Dr. Herb yeah. London with us today. We've also got Don Mazzella, I.Q. Al-Rizzoli. and uh, I, I want to get into another topic here, uh, Doctor. And I want to have I want to have our, our panelists here kind of batted around with you. This um, G20 summit was a great success for the U.S. That's what Trump's been saying. Uh, he just got back from his first group of, uh, of, of 20 summit. Is a uh, as touting his trip and gathering the world leaders is a great success for the U.S. Um, Give us your take on this, and then we'll let uh, IQ and Don jump in and ask you some questions about it.
0: Well, I I think in many ways it was a success. You may recall, during the campaign season, Hillary Clinton made the comment that Donald Trump would be laughed at by world leaders, that in the end he could not represent the United States effectively, that he would be, by, by and large, excoriated, as someone who is incapable of leading America's America's position. Now, what I find so interesting is that when he was in Poland and delivered a speech, a speech that I regard as extremely important, where he talked yes. about the civilizational war that we're engaged in, and where the West has a need to restore and, and defend its principles and its values, he, he was uh, greeted by the Polish people with the, the statement, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, USA, USA. Now, for someone who is incapable of winning the support of leaders around the world, this was a remarkable moment. Here were the Poles standing and screaming in behalf of Donald Trump. They were saying, we're with the United States. We stand with you. Now, here is Trump, who after the president, former president of the United States reneged on the anti-missile system that was to be put in Poland and in the Czech Republic, now saying we're going to restore that system i mean clearly this is a significant moment for the polls and for eastern europe now trump may not get the same reception in western europe or in germany or in 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 parts of western europe but there is no doubt that in eastern europe he is a hero and among the g20 he despite the the new york times account of what (laughs) i think conducted himself very well
1: you you know you, you, music to my ears. I uh, I'll jump in here. It was interesting. Uh, you said what a triumph June twenty seventh was. Yet if you read the the uh, national uh, media, you you would, you would think that it was such a uh, a terrible. Um, yet um, uh, what he did in in, in Europe, I, I thought really deserved. Uh, much better coverage and much more better understanding, and uh, again, uh, um, I'm I'm going to say that uh, his speech in Poland, I think, uh, if you recall, Winston Churchill's speech about the Iron Curtain uh, in Missouri was barely covered, wasn't even mentioned in the New York Times, That's right. and That's and right. became uh, so. Uh, and I think over time, that uh, Trump speech will go down as, one, as a, a uh, similarly significant speech, and I, I'm glad you brought it up.
0: Gentlemen, well, I, again, you know, I think what we need, we need more people to stand up and say, Western civilization is superior, that we have something that the other world, the rest of the world, does, does not possess. The understanding of the rule of law, the free markets that we have, as well as the defense of individual rights, set the, uh, the Western nations apart from others. And it's, it's very difficult for people around the globe to understand that. And certainly the left in the United States doesn't understand it. But we are unique, completely idiosyncratic. If I could just make one brief, tell you one brief story that has always been very, very poignant to me. My friend Ian Hirsi Ali and I were engaged in conversation. And she did not include this story in any of her books. And I'm a little surprised why she hasn't done so. But she, after leaving uh, Somalia and then uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, left home, ran away from home because her parents were going to have her marry a man 40 years or her or her age. And in addition, she had suffered beatings and a clitoridectomy and God knows what else. So she left home and went to Holland. When she was in Holland for a while, she met some people and she was walking down the corridor of a building with a young man. They came to a door and at the door, he stopped, opened the door and he said, ladies first. At that moment, she was paralyzed. She said to him, what did you say? He said, "Uh, ladies first. She said, I don't don't understand that. What do you mean, ladies first? I've never heard an expression like that in my life. In my world, ladies are always last. Ladies represent half of a man in a court of law. Ladies always walk behind men. Ladies are insignificant compared to men. What do you mean, ladies first? He said, well, it's customary for a young man to say that. I didn't say anything unusual. This is what we say in the West, all over the West. Open a door, you're with a woman, and you say ladies first. She said, the West is best. The West is superior. Now, using language like that is very, very difficult for people to absorb, but let me tell you that in respect to customs, traditions, values, and the constitutional provisions that we live with, the West is best. We have to make Americans understand that once again. It used to be a reflexive understanding. It no longer is. We've got to recapture that spirit. That, I think, was said in the Donald Trump speech in
3: Poland. Mm -hmm. Doctor, would you agree with me that the reason he said what he said in Poland is because the Poles, especially, and the Hungarians have refused any Muslims of coming in?
0: I think that's right. I think that's exactly Mm -hmm. right. You know, uh, Viktor Orbach, who uh, is the leader in in Hungary, he is arguably the most popular man in Eastern Europe. He could run for the president of Poland, even though he's Hungarian. Why? Because he said to the migrants when they were marching through Europe, you want to go to Germany? Keep marching. But don't stop in Hungary. There's no place for you here. He understood the potential for terrorism in Europe something that the Eastern Europeans appreciate. When they marched into Germany and you see the events that have occurred in Cologne and then the murders that have occurred in Paris, you start to understand Viktor Orban was correct. He understood something about Europe that the Merkels of the world do not understand.
2: Yes, yes, that, and, and, and that brings us to our next topic here. We've got Dr. Herb London with us today, president of the London Center for Research policy research. He's also the co-author of the great new book, The Encyclopedia of Militant Islam. And uh, we've got Don Mazzella also with us today and IQ Al rizzoli Now, tell us a little bit about this book because this this is going to be right in IQ Al rizzolis wheelhouse and he will wanna, <laughs> he will want to he will, will want to ask you a ton of questions. Tell us a little bit about the book, The Encyclopedia well, of Militant you, are Islam. you are referring
0: you're referring to the the book that I've written about the, uh, the Islamic world.
2: Yes, yes.
0: The, the, the title of the book is The, uh, the, the uh, Encyclopedia of Militant Islam. And the book is really designed to give people an understanding of the kind of organizations that exist in Islam. One of the problems that you have is every day there's a new title, a new organization. We are not merely a war against ISIS. If ISIS is defeated in Raqqa, if it's defeated in Mosul, if it's defeated in the Middle East, it will still metastasize and be a, a real threat around the world in the form of insurgency. We also have to understand that the war we are fighting is not merely a war that is fought on the battlefields in the Middle East. It is a war, an ideational war. It's a war of ideas. We've got to demonstrate that our ideas are, are, are superior, and we've got to demonstrate that there's nothing to be gained by embracing militant Islam. And so the book is really designed to give people an understanding of who are these people, where are they located? What do they stand for? And, you know, if I were to stop people on the street and say, what is the difference between, oh, Boko Haram and, and, uh, and al-Qaeda, they don't know. And so this is a book that really is designed to give people an indication of the geography, the tactics, location, money, all of the sources of support they are getting. That was the purpose behind this encyclopedia. It's not bedtime reading unless, of course, it's a soporific experience. You want to go to bed very early. So then you read as much as possible. But I mean, it's the kind of book that you read because you can find out a little bit about each of the organizations that are tied into this radical Islamic world. And there are three overarching themes in the, in the most radical radical world. One is jihad. One is the caliphate. And of course, the, the other is, is the embrace of, uh, of this, uh, the, the radical philosophy, sh- Sharia, which is more than just law. It's a way of life. Now, so it's n- Sharia, it's Jihad, it's the Caliphate.
2: Now, Doctor, in this book, do you, uh, do you discuss uh, Kufar and, 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 and some, some, some of those, uh, the, the, the strategies that, that, that some of the, the radical Islamists uh, use? Yes, no, no question. I mean, that, that's
0: all in the book. Uh, the tactics, as I, I say, the general strategy is the same the three major points that I just made. But in addition, there are different tactics that are employed in large part because they're in different parts of the world. Of course, the constituencies
2: are different. But that is explained in the book in in great detail. Now, IQ, uh, you have, I know, some questions.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Doctor, would you agree with me? Because I simplify things. It took me 30 years to come to these conclusions. That every single Muslim, by definition, is the enemy of every human being who is not a Muslim. By definition. Well, I, I, well I, don't, I don't agree with that. Look,
0: I think that within Islam, there is a certain kind of violence. And when Sisi went to al- al- Al-Azur and spoke to the, Sunni, the theological leaders of the Sunni faith, he said, we've got a real problem here. We're not going to we'll go to war against the whole world. It's absurd. But we've got a violence within our religion. We have an obligation to deal with it. And at the end of the speech, he talked about a revolution from within. Now, that speech, which should have been given worldwide attention, got scant attention in the United States. I think it was a mistake. But it was embraced by the king of Bahrain. It was embraced by the king of Jordan. It's not as if he's alone. There are people out there who embrace that view. Now, it's true that the violence is within the religion. And in that sense, you either, according to most philosophers of Islam, you either submit or die. But if there is someone who's saying, look, I'm willing to embrace Islam, like a Sufi. I'm willing to embrace Islam, but I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't really care about that person. Let him embrace anything he wants, as long as there's no violence and there's no activity to harm other people.
3: Yeah, but, but this if is people a want very... to
0: embrace that view. I have no problem with it.
3: Correct, but that's a utopian point of view. We are talking about reality. The reality well, is I,
0: I, again the reality. The reality is that there are many in the Islamic world who are peaceful, but they do not express their view and they do not challenge the extremists in the faith that want to engage in world jihad. That's that's the problem. That the change that occurred that has to occur within Islam. It's not something that we can impose. It's something that has to happen from within. They have well, to embrace it. And as I said,
3: CC, CC did that. CC did it. Sisi made the most remarkable speech. I know, I listened to it in Arabic. That's my, my mother tongue. But the, he was talking to the most fundamentalist imams in the world at the Azhar university. He cannot change anything LCC. Nobody in Islam can change an iota in the Qur'an, why? Because the Qur'an is the perfect word of Allah. And something which is perfect, you cannot take a dot from it, you can't add a dot to it. I know you said there are peaceful Muslims. Let me put it another way. Not every German was a Nazi, but they killed millions of people. Not every Russian was a communist, but 70 million people were killed. Not every Chinese was a communist, but another 70 million people were killed. So the moderates are irrelevant. The ones who are in control are the Imams. Even in Saudi Arabia, the new king, is a young boy, 37 years old, dedicated in the West. He wants to modernize. He will never succeed. They will kill him.
0: I know. You may be right. You may be right, but if there were no... if there was someone who had killed Hitler, obviously the German state would have gone in a different direction. If Chairman Mao were really opposed by Chiang Kai-shek and he had the support of the West, that movement might very well have failed. There is no doubt that Stalin, had Stalin not had the support of the West, and at least initially. He could not have been successful. We have to understand that the changes that occur very often occur within these states within these religions and within these national movements. Again, I, I don't disagree with a word that you've said. I think that it is dangerous, and I think you're absolutely correct in pointing out that the Koran itself is based on the word of Allah, since it's the archangel Gabriel that was the host for Allah in, in writing the Koran. The so in theory, the Koran is a perfect document. But even the Koran, as you know, is subject to a variety of interpretations. And you also know that if you study the Qur'an at all, uh, there is abrogation where the more violent periods are seen as more important than the more subtle, peaceful periods. But that too could change. Again, you know, one of the things that you can never predict is how people in the end will interpret a a document, notwithstanding the fact that the Qur'an is not really subject to interpretation based on the fact that it is a perfect document.
3: Doctor, you are you are very knowledgeable, but you're contradicting yourself. With all due respect, all four madhab, that is all the four sects of Islam, Sunni Islam, which are the most important, after the, all, the Sunnis are 85 percent of the Muslim population. All right, four of right. them agree, all four of them agree that in abrogation, which is a nasikhul mansukh, the later verses, which are the Medina verses, overrule all the conciliatory verses of the Mecca period. There is nothing misinterpretation here. There's no way anybody can change that. Because all four madhaheb, all four sects of Islam, agree to it. Even the Shia Muslims, although they don't agree with the uh, sources that the, Muslims, the Sunnis have, they believe in Sharia. Sharia is the nemesis of everything we in the West believe in. Everything. This well, hate-mongering, war Sorry, go on.
0: I was going to say... I don't I don't disagree with uh, your knowledge and your background and your interpretation. I think it's correct. I am somewhat utopian. And I'm utopian because I've met many sunnis, uh, sufis who are very very peaceful people and rely on the Mecca portion of the uh, of the Quran. I have met many people who don't care about what is in the Quran at all and choose to select the Quran, read the Quran very selectively. Now, these people exist. Are they the people who will ultimately determine the future of Islam? Probably not. But at the same time, these are the only people who give us hope for the future, unless you're talking about Armageddon. And I would prefer to avoid that, if
3: at all possible. I wish you good luck.
2: <laughs> we've got. I doc- wish you good luck. We've got Dr. Herb <laughs> London with us today. And uh, Don, uh, back to you. Do you have any questions for the doctor while we've got him here?
1: Well, I've got a lot of questions. I'm trying to digest. the. You know, it's like the referee or well, the bystander <laughs> watching two heavyweights go at, go at it. And uh, you're impressed. You're hoping that the, Look, I, the, the, the I good doctor is right.
0: I, just want, I want to make one very insignificant point. I don't disagree with the very intelligent commentary that was uttered just a moment ago. I don't disagree with it, and I think it is very intelligent, and it's a very important point of view. All I'm saying is I maintain a kind of utopian position only because I think it's the only hope for the future. So uh, I recognize the fact that mine may not be realistic, may not be, but I understand. I want you to understand why I embrace it. Please excuse me for interrupting you, by the way
1: oh please Do it. Uh, uh, believe me that's a, an excellent uh comment and uh, uh having- wor- uh, been with i q for two years uh i've listened and uh, he he's made made me more frightened uh i've i've been in the middle east i've uh, been in a few wars uh and uh, uh uh, after listening to iq i I've, I've ha- uh, had to radically change my perception per, uh, perception of things but but I'll go uh, in the other direction and, and uh, say uh, here in america uh, I believe we lost the Vietnam War because um, Americans lost heart and and they were uh, uh, kind of led astray and yet and we sit here today um, uh, again with the media that seems uh, not to be, be able to see uh, the boogeyman, uh, uh, the danger out there. What is, uh, what's your view on that?
0: Look, I, I mean, there's an expression that's very often employed by the press, and you've heard it many times, called American fatigue, where Americans are simply tired of wars, tired of sending their, their young men to, ba- to battle, young men and women into battle. Uh, I don't buy that at all. My feeling is it's always a question of leadership. If you were to look at the United States, for example, in 1939, 1940, despite the, the downturn that occurred in Europe, Hitler marching across the continent, Hitler taking over France, Great Britain being challenged, and the United States still sitting on the sidelines, notwithstanding Len lease you'd say, we're not going to this president FDR. is not going to bring the United States to war. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor occurs, the world changes, and what happened to the American first movement? Gone, absolutely gone. So it's always a question of the leadership that you have in the country. Uh, I don't know, it's a premature to talk about Donald Trump as a great leader. All I can say is that we were in a nation of eight for eight years that was virtually leaderless. We did not have any guidance from the president of the United States. We talked just a moment ago about the interesting speech that was given by Sisi. If I were president of the United States at that time, I would have invited El to the United States and asked him to deliver that speech here. I would have given as much attention to that as possible. In many ways, it was like Martin Luther uh, delivering his 95 theses to the Catholic Church. It was an important speech. But all of this is very much dependent on the kind of leader that you have in America and the kind of ability that leader has to mobilize, galvanize, support within the country if you have to fight a war and it's always unpleasant you never want to send your young men into battle knowing full well that there are so many who will lose their lives but if you have to do so then do so with the understanding that there is something very definitely at stake for the future of our nation and that you as a leader are going to do everything in your power to make sure americans understand that we did not have that kind of leader for a considerable period i hope i hope and i pray that Donald
1: Trump is that person. You, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's amazing. Um, uh, the further we get away from Ronald Reagan, the more we appreciate uh, his leadership in, in, in ma- uh, many ways. But having said that, uh, let us now go. To, uh, uh, I, I just had a conversation before we went on the air with with a um, uh uh, a man who, who was asking me the question, uh, why is our me- media so intent on tearing down uh, the, uh, President Trump? What's your view, and why did they build up Obama?
0: Well, the left of the United States is a war with America. What you have now is a relentless attempt to do everything on the part of the left to make Donald Trump a de- delegitimized president of the United States. He doesn't deserve the presidency, argues the left. He was not elected properly. He did not get the popular vote. All kinds of arguments have been made, but there is no question that this attempt to delegitimize the presidency is unprecedented in American history. We have a president who is facing this kind of challenge every day. Donald Trump, I think, to some degree, is very foolish in using his tweets because you cannot address your enemies with 140 characters and some silly commentary. I think he should be engaged in fireside chats where he explains to the American people why we are adopting the policies we are, whether it's tax reform, health care reform, uh, foreign policy decisions, give the Americans an understanding of what we are doing, not through Mm -hmm. tweets. But it's important for the President of the United States as I suggested a moment ago, to provide that kind of leadership. The void that's been created is a void that the left takes care of. The fourth estate in the United States is now an extension of the Democratic Party. You can go to CBS, NBC, CNN, New York Times, all the same. They are out to undermine Donald Trump. Donald Trump gives a great speech in Poland. They call it racist. Donald Trump talks about the, the creation of a defense condominium in Riyadh. The press says, This is ridiculous. There is no doubt that there's nothing that Donald Trump can do at the moment that would receive the full support of the Fourth Estate. That's one of the reasons why I think the president has to go directly to the people, but not with tweets, not with 140 characters. Explain to the American people what you were trying to do. The FDR, have a fireside chat every Saturday morning, sit down for half an hour or 45 minutes, explain to the American people why you gave that speech in Poland. Explain what happened to G20. Uh, explain to the American people why we had the speech that you gave in Riyadh. This is what I think the president should be doing.
1: You know, it's uh, amazing. I don't know uh, if you remember President Reagan used to, used to g- give a speech on uh, Saturday. And I, right. I've, I've, ha- I've had an occasion. I've, I've been told that uh, somebody's p- pulling the best of those speeches together into a book. But I had occasion to re- to read three or four of them, uh, and they are amazingly uh, amazing documents of lucid um, explaining of positions. Which I, I I agree with you that perhaps uh, uh, Donald Trump should do the same. You're you're absolutely right. And the trouble is he well, can't keep the
0: script. Well, <laughs> that's something else again, gentlemen. I I'm obliged to uh, to go to another meeting. Uh, but, but i'd be Not very problem. happy to take one more question or one more comment, uh, depending of course, on why you don why you James, uh, it's
2: up to you don, do you have one more one more comment before we let the doctor yes
0: go. where where can you get your book,
1: and, and, well, the, book,
2: uh, I, book
0: the, the book is available the most recent book is available actually both books the uh the leading from behind as well as the encyclopedia of militant Islam are both available at Amazon. The cost is rather insignificant. we just reduced the cost to fifteen dollars. Uh, I would love to hear from your listeners, by the way. Uh, They can always reach me at londoncenter.org. I do respond to people who send me emails, so don't hesitate to do so. I'm talking, uh, obviously, to your listening audience. Definitely. But uh, it's always a pleasure to be on your program. And I have to tell you that the two guys you have on the show today... That's terrific. Absolutely terrific. Uh, <laughs> well, well, thank of you, of Doctor. You. Uh, I, I only wish there were a few more of you. I don't normally <laughs> believe in cloning, but I'd be very happy to see the two of you cloned. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, <laughs> thank Doctor. You. Thank you.
1: I Love
2: appreciate this. it, sir. Have, have yourself a wonderful day, Doctor. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All the best to you. Thank Take you care. much. Mm-hmm. Dr. Herb London was with a, us today. That was a great...
1: Uh, that was a great guest, Jiggy. Now Now, you're, Don, you're
2: uh, we, we've got about 15 minutes left to go here. IQ, what did you make of uh, Dr. Herb London? And then we'll, uh, we'll bat it around here with Don and maybe cover one more topic while we're at it here.
3: As Don said, music to my ear. There's no question about it. The guy is focused. He knows. The only thing I disagree with him, which, of course, he admitted, he's being utopian, which is fair enough. <laughs> we have... No, no, I mean... He, he believes there is a possibility of dialogue. I know there is no possibility of, there's a big difference between the two of us. He believes, I know, there's no chance in hell of having a dialogue with Islam. Because Islam is not interested in dialogue. Islam is only interested in one thing, to subjugate all humanity to Sharia. There's no other solution. Whether we have a conflagration sooner or later. With the
2: Lucky Lands you can get lucky just about anywhere.